Amen. Well, hey, Bobby, I'm going to start off with the story of a guy, and it's his encounter with the law. Uh-oh. Yeah, and you tell me how well it went. Listen to what he said. Can you get this? Listen. He said, I, I went to the store the other day, and I, I was only there for five minutes, and, and when it came out, there was this pesky motorcycle cop, and he was writing a parking ticket. So I went straight up to him, and I said, come on, buddy. I mean, can, can't you just give a guy a break? And the cop, he totally ignored me, and he continued to write the ticket. So I, I called him a, a, a pencil neck geek. <laughs> so the policeman, he glared at me and started writing another ticket for having bald tires. And so I, I called him a little wormy little weasel. And the cop finished writing the second ticket. He put it on the car with the first ticket, and he started writing the third ticket. And this went on and on for about 20 minutes. And the more I abused him, the more tickets he wrote. But I didn't care. My car was parked around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Pray, pray for Ken, folks. Ken, that's not even funny. I know a couple of weeks ago you lost your license, but you don't do eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Give me a break. But uh, how many guys would say that somebody else is paying a heavy price for somebody's behavior? <laughs> you know, yeah, slightly, okay? And folks, believe it or not, the same thing is happening to you and I as Christians, okay? And it works like this. Our attitude, listen, Christian, towards the law of God, it doesn't just affect our lives. It affects the lives all around us. Okay, why? Because it works like this. When we refuse as Christians to study the Bible, you keep that up, it's done what it's done today. It's produced a whole generation of churches full of Christians who are acting like practical atheists. Oh, we say we believe in God. Of course, you got to say that, right? But half the times, let's be honest, folks, with our lips and with our lives, how we live, we're given a different impression. Like God's not even there. Like he's not even a part of the equation. And it not is just detrimental in our work with God. Just like that guy's behavior, it affects the lives of other people, mainly a bad witness and it could steer him away from god that's something you don't want to do so to avoid this irony of you and i as christians living like these practical atheists but not knowing who god is we're going to continue on our study on the character of god okay now we've already seen the first thing we need to know about god he's what he's make-believe no he's not make-believe bobby be quiet okay no he's real man we're really here for a real reason god's real okay that's the basic premise second thing is what jesus died on the cross for what an intimate, loving, beautiful, personal relationship with God, who's real, the creator of the universe. The third thing we saw, he's wise. Why would you go anywhere else? God knows everything. He'll never steer you wrong. He doesn't lie. Man, he is wise. Stick with him. The fourth thing we saw is God is sovereign, okay? He knows all things, has power of all things, and he works all things together for what? Good. Good. That's an amazing message there. And last time we saw the fifth thing about God is God is powerful. So once again, turn to somebody and share with them those encouraging words. Turn to them and go... Boom! All right, Bobby did it. But uh, God is not just powerful. We saw he is what? What's the word the scripture used? Almighty, all-powerful, right? And we saw four practical ways that God demonstrates that, okay? And we saw that certainly with his display of creation, the demonstration of miracles, the destroying, amen, of the works of Satan, and even his defeating of death. Anybody glad that as a Christian you don't have to be afraid of dying? Is, aren't you so excited about the power of God that our last breath here is our first breath in heaven and so shall it always be? Woo! It just keeps getting better. That's how powerful God is, okay? But speaking of getting better, God explained to us just the, uh, the fullness of how powerful he is. It gets even better, okay? We can not only know, listen, we can not only know that God is powerful. Listen, God gives us specifics. We can know what his power is like. And the first way, listen to this, Christian, be encouraged today. The first way the Bible shows us what God's power is like is there is nothing that God cannot do. 
Now, this is the ultimate thing. There are no hopeless situations. There's only people who get tricked into giving up hope in God. God can do whatever he wants to do. Now, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to his. And what you're going to see in the Old Testament, this is just one example, that not only the Israelites, turn to Numbers chapter 11, Numbers chapter 11, verses 18 through 23, but Numbers chapter 11, we're going to see not only the Israelites, but even Moses, if you can believe that. Moses had a time where he's like, mm, really, God, can you really do anything you want? Yeah. And Moses had to get corrected, not just the Israelites. Okay, but Numbers chapter 11, that's our opening text. We're going to read verses 18 there. Okay, and as you turn there in the context, okay, you're going to see that uh, God is bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. He's already doing miracles. They should, when he says he's going to do something, why are you even doubting? How many times has he got to prove it? Okay. And they're having a time where they you know, need some food and stuff, and they're, they're beginning to complain. They're beginning to complain about God's direction. They're beginning to complain about God's leadership. And they're beginning to complain about God's provision. And it's a good thing we never do that. Yeah. Did you know God hears everything? And that's what he's going to say. Excuse me, I don't live in a bubble. I can hear everything you're saying at all times. And so he corrects them. That's the context. But let's read what he says. And God's speaking to Moses here, verse 18. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. You know that's how they said it, right, Bill? Right? <laughs> you know what they're basically saying to God? God led them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, out of oppression. They're basically saying, I wish I wasn't saved. Can you believe that? God doesn't take kindly to that kind of attitude. So here's what he says. Now the Lord will give you meat. You will eat it. And you will not eat it just for one day or two days or five or ten or twenty days. But you're going to eat it for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils until you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord. How many guys would say they're in trouble? You ever had your dad say something like that to you? Oh yeah, well you're going to... Maybe it was just me and my upbringing. Pray for my family history, but... Whoa, man. Okay, and this is why. Because you rejected the Lord. Who is what? He's among you. He's not, he hears every conversation. And, and you've wailed before him saying, well, we really Egypt. But Moses, Moses, okay, guys, listen to God. How many times? Moses began to crack. But Moses said, God, hey, what are you doing? Chrome translation. Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, right? You add the women and children, that it's easy, two million plus so both say, God, there's over 2 million people here. What are you doing? Right? And they're looking at me. And you, and you say, I'll give them meat to eat for a whole month. Well, we, Moses said, well, we, God, would, would we have enough if, if, if the flocks and the herds were slaughtered for them? And, and would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? And the Lord answered Moses, listen, is the Lord's arm too what? I love this. Is God's arm too short? Of course not. Okay, and you will now see whether or not what I say, God says to Moses, will come true for you. But here we see not just Israelites, but in our text, even Moses began to crack. And they began to have a little attitude problem. And they all begin to start to complain about their circumstances, about, about God's provision. And Moses got into it just like everybody else. Why? Because he began, just like the people, even Moses began to doubt that what? That God can do whatever in the world he says he's going to do. Right? If God says he's going to do it, guess what? He's going to do it. If God says, I don't care what the circumstances look like, I'm going to step in and I'm going to fix it. What was their problem? They began to doubt that God can do whatever he wants to do. Now, folks, this isn't just an Old Testament issue. 
I, you know, me personally, I look around the American church, and I think this is another one of our biggest problems, living like these so-called practical atheists, okay? We, too, start to complain about our circumstances or God's direction or God's provision. Why? Because, in essence, it is basically this. We are doubting God's ability to do what he wants to do. In essence, we are doubting the fact that God's not just powerful. He is all-powerful. Complaining is doubt in action. And we're doubting that God has the power to pull it off. Now, see, we don't look at it like that. And sometimes we think that God is in that plastic bubble. He can't hear me as I whine and complain. For those of you wondering, that's the universal sign for whining and complaining. Okay. <laughs> we doubt that God can do it. Same thing today. Okay. So to help us get an attitude adjustment, just like Moses, just like the Israelites, okay, we're going to take a look at some ways that the Bible shows us specifically Hello, God can do whatever he wants, okay? We're going to take a look at three ways. The first way is God can save anybody he wants. Is that encouraging or what? Isn't it awesome to know that, that, you, that nobody reaches that threshold where God says, oh, you sin too much, I, I have no ability to take care of you. No, in fact, believe it or not, the disciples had to learn this. Okay, let's take a look at that text there. Once again, of course, Jesus speaking. Matthew 19, verse 24 through 26, he says, again, I tell you, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, okay, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How many guys have tried that on a Saturday afternoon? Hey, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Have you ever got to that point where you're married and you get to that? Or even remember when you were dating and you'd have that endless discussion? What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What you, right? And it can go on even after you get married. But how many guys on a Saturday afternoon, I know what we'll do. Let's go buy a camel and squish it through a needle. Now, hopefully you've never got that bored, okay? But you wouldn't even attempt that. You wouldn't think that because you're going, what? That is impossible. Jesus uses that analogy, and he says, now when the disciples heard this, and he's talking about who can be saved, right? Salvation is the context here. When the disciples heard this, okay, they were greatly astonished. They said, then who can be saved, right? Right? And what did Jesus say? Jesus looked straight at him. He says, with man, this is what? Impossible. But with God, how much? All things are possible. Now, we quote that oftentimes when we go through hard times or circumstances, and rightly so, because God is powerful. But technically, this passage is dealing about what? God saving whoever in the world he wants to do. Okay? And that's what he says. He says, all things are possible with him. He can save whoever he wants. And by the way, last time I checked, how much is all? Kind of means all. He didn't say some. He didn't say most things. He didn't say that, you know, I'll get, you know, get, by and large, I'll get, I'll get, you know, a big high percentage of it. He says, no, all things are possible with God. Now, I will make a disclaimer here before we go any further for the skeptic, right? Now, pay attention. Uh, the phrase there, God can do all things, right? Now, what the Bible means with that is God can do all things that are consistent with his character. Pay attention. This is important, okay? Because there are some things technically that God cannot do. What? Yeah, listen, he can't lie. Right? Think about it. Because he's holy. He, he can't learn. He already knows everything. He can't like sin, and he can't be tempted with sin, right? So when the scripture says that God can do all things, common sense, and the scripture means it's talking about all things that are consistent with his character. So don't fall for the skeptic's trick, because they'll bait you with this one, and they'll, and they'll ask you, well, can God do anything? And of course, you're likely to say yes. Okay, then they'll come back with this question. Well, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? How many of you guys heard that one? Okay. And folks, I don't know if you learned this as a Christian, but that's one of those trick questions. The trick questions that you can't win. It's like the question somebody comes up to you, hey, have you stopped beating your wife yet? 
Now, wait a second. If you say yes, then you're admitting that you do. But if you say no, then you're saying you're still doing it. <laughs> right? And, and that's that question, Mark. But besides the question, can God make a rock so big? It's kind of like that. It's a trick question. There's, right? uh, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? It's illogical by definition because God, by definition, is the biggest, the supreme being of all. Therefore, nothing ever can or ever will be bigger than him. Secondly, with all due respect, making a rock so big that you can't lift it, I'm sorry, he's dumb, and God's not dumb. That's not consistent with his character. Okay, that's the Chrome translation there. Okay, but here's the point of the passage. I had to throw that in there because somebody will bait you with that. Oh, God can do everything. Okay, it's consistent with his character. But the point of the passage is when it comes to salvation, when it comes to salvation, God can save anybody he wants. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a huge comfort to me personally, okay, especially when I think about my unsaved loved ones, people I've been trying to share Jesus with for years, right? It just seems like you're never getting anywhere, okay? Uh, over time, we start to do what? We start to do like Moses and the Israelites. We start to doubt. We start to doubt. Well, uh, maybe, maybe God can't save that one. You know, that coworker, it just never seems to, you know, that mom or dad, that family member, now there's a neighbor, oh, that neighbor. <laughs> and maybe you've been tempted, I hope never even verbalize this. There's no use. Might as well write them off. God can't save that person. Really? If you ever say that, you need to repent because you don't know the power of the cross of Christ. God can save anybody he wants. Oh, yeah, it's impossible with man. But all things are possible with God. In fact, I want to give you some encouraging proof this morning on this truth. Okay, turn to your neighbor. Okay, now listen. I say this all the time, but you guys never do it. So I'm going to make you do it. How about that? So, yeah, I know. Let's get in there. I'm getting a little legalistic on you, but it's a good thing. I'm trying to encourage you. So turn to somebody, and that does involve your head going like this. Okay, so turn to somebody and say these words. You ready? If God can save you, go ahead. He can save anybody. <laughs> See, wasn't that worth it? <laughs> but hey, it gets even better, man. This is what the scriptures are telling us. This is good news. This is a comfort, man. There's always hope. Don't ever stop witnessing. I don't care who they are. Okay? God can only save you. Did you know he can save me? And you know my testimony. Who am I? I'm the ex-headbanger, drug addict, sexual moral, male, someone's pig guy involved in the occult. How many of you guys glad that God saved your pastor? Yeah. Hey, me too. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but but, here, but here's, see, sometimes we reach this threshold. And we say, well, okay, but that's just one. God couldn't save somebody like, um, like a mass murderer. I mean, I mean, those people, surely they're, they're too far gone. Really? Let's take a look at the final hours of mass murderer Ted Bundy. Let's see what happened. Let's take a look. Ted, it is uh, about 2.30 in the afternoon. Uh, you are scheduled to be executed tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock if you don't receive another stay. What is going through your mind? What thoughts have you had in these last few days? I'm, right now, I'm feeling calm, and in, in, in large part because I'm here with you. For the record, you are guilty of killing many women and girls. Is yes, that yes, that's true. Is the remorse there? 
again, I, I know that people will accuse me of being self-serving, but we're beyond that now. I mean, I'm just telling you how I feel. But through God's help, I have been able to come to the point where I've much too late, but better late than never, feel the hurt and the pain that I am responsible for. Yes, absolutely. In the past few days, myself and a number of investigators have been talking about unsolved cases, murders that I was involved in. And it's hard to, it's hard to talk about all these years later because it revives in me all those terrible feelings and those thoughts that I have steadfastly and, 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 and diligently dealt with, and I think successfully, with the love of God. And yet it's reopened that and I felt the pain and I felt the horror again of all that. And I can only hope that those who I have harmed, those who I've caused so much grief, even if they don't believe my expression of sorrow and remorse, will believe what I'm saying now, that there is loose in their towns and their communities, people like me today, whose dangerous impulses are being fueled day in and day out by violence in the media in its various forms, particularly sexualized violence. Ted, as you would imagine, there is tremendous cynicism about you on the outside, and I suppose for good reason. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure that there's anything that you could say that people would uh, would believe, some people would believe. Yeah. And, uh, and yet, you told me last night, and I have heard this through our mutual friend John Tanner, that you have uh, accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and uh, are a follower and a believer in Him. Do you draw strength from that uh, as you approach these final hours? I do. I have to remind myself that every one of us uh, will go through this someday yes. in one way or another. It's appointed and, unto man. And countless uh, millions who have walked this earth before us have. So this is just an experience which we all share. And yeah. Right on. What? Just going by the words. I don't know about you, but here's me, the Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. As he said, better late than never. He, he professed Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior before he died. Oh, come on, Pastor Bill. There's no way. I mean, what that guy did, I mean, he murdered. Oh, please don't tell me as a Christian you're playing that game. You're not being self-righteous, are you? Because God doesn't play that game. He doesn't categorize. You want, you want to go down that route? Oh, I've never murdered somebody. God did. The sin of hatred, the Bible says, is akin to the sin of murder. God doesn't play that categorization game. He saw your heart. Remember, he doesn't live in a bubble. You wished in your heart that you could pull the trigger and take that person out. Sin. The penalty of sin is the same. But, but, but based on his words, I mean, so when he died, God just didn't say, but he died, Ted Bundy, because of the power of the cross of Christ. Where'd he go? He went to heaven. 
This is how powerful God is. Why? Because God does what man cannot do. We would write somebody like that off. But Jesus says, oh yeah, I died for even him. And if he would just turn to me and it appeared that he did, I will forgive everything he's done just like the rest of us. Isn't that incredible? That magnifies the power of God, the power of the cross of Christ. And what he accomplished for us, okay? God can save anybody he wants. But you might be thinking, well, maybe that's just Ted Bundy, you know what I'm saying? That's just an aberration. No, that was a fluke. No, 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 no. That was one of those jailhouse conversions. He really didn't mean it, right? Huh? Well, let's take a look at another seemingly impossible case. Can the cross of Christ really reach into them and save them too? Let's take a look at this guy. Jeffrey Dahmer brutally murdered 17 young men and boys. Once it happened the first time, it just seemed like it had control of my life from there on in. His killing spree lasted more than a decade, and the horror didn't stop at murder. Why the cannibalism? How could a seemingly normal Midwestern boy grow up to commit such terrible crimes? The never-before-seen confessions of a serial killer. Your dad has wondered about all kinds of things, from the medication that your mom was on during her pregnancy, to the fact that you were exposed to violent arguments in the home from an early age and continuing, to the possibility that he might have passed on some genetic propensity for obsession or violent behavior. Does any of that ring true to you? I can see why he'd wonder about those things, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, they're all excuses because I didn't feel accountable to anybody. I didn't feel that I had to to uh, face what I had done ever. And uh, so you, you have there comes a point where a person has to has to be accountable for what he's done. can't go can't go around making excuses, uh, blaming other people or other things. So I, I alone am the one who is responsible for what's happened. Let me ask, when did you first feel that, that everyone is accountable for their actions? Well, thanks to you for, for sending uh, that uh, creation science uh, material. Because I always, I always believe the, uh, the lie that uh, evolution is truth, the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from uh, the slime and uh, when, we, when we died, you know, that was it. There was nothing. So it, the whole theory cheapens life and uh, started reading books about how, that show how evolution is, is just a complete lie. There's, there's, no, there's no basis in science to, to uphold it. And I've come to, since come to believe that uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of uh, the heavens and the earth. It just didn't just happen. And uh, I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And I believe that I, as, long, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. Wow. Two for two. Just got to deal with the facts. Sounds to me like Jeffrey Dahmer, what happened? He gave his life to Christ. Right? He got saved. Now, let me just say this again. I'll never forget. I will share this. I remember the, one of the first times I ever showed that testimony of Jeffrey Dahmer professing Christ as his Savior. I remember after that study, people got irate with me. 
And it almost made me want to throw up because I'm going to excuse me. And they said, no, how dare you say he got, listen, I'm not, I'm just working with what he said. And I'm working with what the Bible says, that God can save whoever in the world he wants. And the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from any and all sin. What Bible are you reading? And if you're going to sit there, and then I started to get concerned with those people. I'm going, man, if you're, then what are you trusting in? Your works? You want, did, have you read the scripture, the verbiage that God uses for those who would say that we're going to get there by our own self-righteousness? God calls them what? Filthy rags. Remember what that term was in the Hebrew? Sorry to be graphic. It's the Hebrew word for minstrel rag, tampon. And you know what God does? These people stand before his throne and says, Hey, God, we didn't need the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. <laughs> we did it ourselves. <laughs> yeah, our self-righteousness. We weren't as bad as those guys. Because that's what self-righteousness sounds like. And then you proceed to take a bloody, say it, it's the scripture, a bloody tampon, and you throw it before the throne. God says, I brought my own blood. How many guys would say those people are in trouble? Those people in the scripture were called Pharisees. How many guys realize that Jesus had some very loud choice words for the Pharisees? Don't be a Pharisee. We should be excited with this news. That's impossible with man. But here's the good news. <laughs> Whether you've murdered somebody with your mouth or in your heart, or unfortunately, even physically. If you really repent, if you really come to Christ, and you really mean it, Jesus has the power to forgive you of all sins. Isn't that splendid? Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Nobody is beyond the grace of God. This is the power of the cross of Christ. And through the cross of Christ, God can save anybody he wants. That's how powerful he is. Why? Because salvation is based not on what we do for God. It's what Christ has done for us on the cross. The power is in the cross of Christ, and it is unlimited. He can forgive all sins. And I don't know about you, but here's my point. This is just the first aspect. I'd say anybody who could save you. I could say anybody who could save me. Anybody who could save actual mass murders, I'd say they're a little bit powerful, amen? In fact, I would venture to say, you know what? They can do whatever in the world they want to do. That's how powerful God is. Now, that's just the first one. The second way we know that God can do whatever he wants, he can only save anybody he wants. He can supply any need he wants. And that, in essence, was really what our first text was dealing with, right? But let me give you another one. Okay, that God can supply. I don't care what your need is. Hello. Okay, he can do it. Okay, and this is what we see in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 17 through 18. For this is what the Lord says. Okay, and this is the prophet Elijah reminding the people they're freaking out. They're surrounded by enemies. They got this great need. They're running out of water. Oh, no. So Elijah steps in and shares the word of God. Here's what he says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you and your cattle and your other animals, they're all going to drink. Take care of it. This is what? An easy thing for the, in the eyes of the Lord. And also, like a bonus, eh, he'll hand Moab over to you at the same time. Okay, a little bonus there. Sprinkles on the ice cream. Right? 
Now, the passage here, if you're not familiar with it, the Israelites, they're getting long provisions. They begin to freak out. They think they're going to die of thirst. And on top of that, they're being surrounded by their enemy, the Moabites. They're doomed. And so Elijah steps in, and he tells them what? He said, God is not only going to fill this whole valley out of the blue, lickety-split, real quick, full of water so they can drink. He's also going at the same time, yeah, I'll take care of your enemies too. Now, I said all that, not just that he said that, not just that God's going to supply that need. Listen, I want you to focus on the phrase there. He said what? It's an easy thing for God to do. When's the last time you guys came out here in the desert and made water come out of nowhere? Now, there is a practical way, which I do not recommend, that you could give the illusion that you had that power. And if you blew up Hoover Dam, you could make water kinds of water but please don't do that and don't say i said that okay but god doesn't need to blow up a dam right god just boom and there it is he made water come from the rock he does it here too and so for thousands of people and thousands of animals he just bang here it is Woo! what else oh that's right you're in these yeah they're taken care of it wasn't just that he said he was going to do it it isn't just that they had the power to do it. what was the phrase that god says this is an easy thing hey guys can you give me something more challenging and you're thinking, well, why? Why would God do that? Well, first of all, because, hello, God owns everything. How many times do we forget this one, folks? And let me give you just two passages there. Uh, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is who? It's not Satan's. The earth is God's. It's always been God's. The earth is the Lord's, and how much? Everything in it. The world and all who live in it, which includes us. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every animal. How many animals? Every animal of the forest is mine, God says, and even the cattle on a thousand hills. How many of you guys would say that's a lot of cows? Brings a little tear to your eye, doesn't it? At least it does mine. Okay. But oh, by the way, I have to share this, Barry. Notice that he didn't say as a word of encouragement, it was the chickens on a thousand hills. He's trying to encourage us, so he uses the obvious word. Yeah, whatever, I digress. But uh, speaking of uh, cows and God's provision, folks, how many times did God got to provide for us out of the blue, just like with the water? The end? How many times does he have to do that before we'll go, <laughs> what am I worried about? What am I worried about? I'm not going to see wind. I'm not going to see rain. I'm not even going to see. But all I know is God's faithful. He's got the power to do whatever he wants to do. He'll make my provision. Let me give you a cool cow story. We just read that text, Cattle on Thousand Hills. Listen, true story. Shortly after Dallas Seminary, if you're familiar with them, it was founded in 1924, but shortly after it started, they, bloop, they almost folded. And it actually came to the point of bankruptcy. All the creditors were ready to foreclose at 12 noon on a particular day. And, and that morning, the founders of the school met in the president's office to pray that God would somehow provide, literally down to the final few hours. And in that prayer meeting was a guy named Harry Ironside, if you're familiar with him, a theologian. And when it was his turn to pray, he just said in his own candid way, he says, Lord, he quoted that scripture, Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are yours. Please sell some of them and send us the money. <laughs> True story. Bang. Talk about the sovereignty of God coupled with his power. Just at that time, a tall Texan in boots, this is in Texas, uh, uh, he came into the business office and he told the secretary, he says, hey, howdy. I'm sure he said howdy. He said, I just sold two carloads, two carloads of cattle over in Fort Worth. And I've been trying to make a business deal to go through, but it just won't work. But I feel God uh, wants me to give this money to the seminary. I don't know if you need it or not, but here's the check. And he gave her the check. 
So the secretary, they're still in the prayer meeting. She takes the check, and knowing the critical nature of their hour, right, she goes to the prayer meeting. She timidly taps. Louis Ferry Schaefer, if you're familiar with him, another great theologian, uh, and uh, he answers the door, and he takes the check from her hand. He looks at the amount of the check. They're still praying. It was the exact sum of the debt. Listen to this. And so he recognized the name of the guy on the check that he was a cattle rancher, cattleman. And so he turns to Dr. Ironside and he says, Harry, God sold the cattle. <laughs> can you believe that? I mean, it really happened, right? And it's, it's so much so that God can supply any need he wants. He actually gives us this command, not a suggestion. He gives us this command. I don't know about you, but man, read this, go to sleep. This is awesome. Jesus, again, I didn't make this up. He said it, Matthew 6, 31 through 32. So do not what? Don't do it. You don't have to. You have divine permission from God. Don't worry. And specifically, what's he call out? Provision, need. He said, don't, don't go around in life, Christian, going, oh, what shall we eat? I don't know. What shall, what shall we drink? I don't know. What wear. Because that's what the pagans do. But you're my kids. Come on. Don't give a false impression to the lost. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you what? That you need him. If he, it goes on, he says, if he can take care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, give me a break. Is he not going to take care of you? O ye of little faith. God can supply any need he wants. He'll make sure that we got something to eat, something to drink, something to wear. You don't need to, Now, it may not be a pair of Gucci shoes, but it'll be what's good for you. Because, see, that's a problem. The world confuses genuine needs with our manufactured wants. God, you didn't give me that giant house. Or God, you didn't give me that Cadillac. You don't need that. Are you getting to and fro? You got food? Doesn't look like you guys are starving, but I won't go there. Uh, I'm assuming you guys had a place to sleep. And praise God, you all got clothes on, because I couldn't. It'd be hard to preach. Right? Hey, yay, don't worry, God's faithful, woo, right? What are we worried about? He's doing what he said he'd do. The key is just trust him. In fact, this is what blows me away. Read the scripture. Read the scripture. God says, in fact, I can only supply any need I want. I can do it out of thin air. Now, here's just one passage. How many times do we read this and we not realize the power of God and making this provision. Matthew 14, 15 through 21. As evening approached, the disciples came to him, Jesus, and said, this is a remote place. And it's, it's already getting late. So Jesus, uh, you need to send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and, and, you know, and buy themselves some food, right? What's Jesus say? They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Huh? Uh, Jesus, uh, we, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. And What's Jesus say? All right, give them here to me. You guys still ain't getting it, are you? Who's sitting right before you? Who can make provision out of thin air? So he, he directs the people to sit down on the grass, and he takes the five loaves, the two fish. He looks up to heaven. Jesus gives thanks. He breaks the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate, and they were what? Satisfied. satisfied. Not only satisfied, the need was completely met. Woohoo! 100%. And the disciples picked up what? Twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides the women and children. You add that number to that, you're easily dealing 15,000, 20,000 people with just a couple of sticks of food. Now, here's my point. That knowledge shows us that God's powerful, that he can make provision, and that he can make provision for a large need and a large amount of people, lickety-split. But he's so powerful. What did he do? He just made that provision out of thin air. 
Now, here's our problem, Christian. We think that that's the only kind of things that God does 2,000 years ago. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he wants to do it again today. He can do it today. Uh, in fact, I'm going to give you some proof. I shared this a while back, but this still blows me away. This is an actual missionary report that I got my hands on. Listen to how God met this need. He says this, Dear friends and partners in ministry, we have a wonderful story of God's love and provision to share with you, so may this encourage your heart. Two days ago, I, Don, took a team of medical personnel to the village of Maiz, about a 20-minute drive from Iris Base in Pimbo. This is in Mozambique, Africa. And as you know from our reports, I've been doing this uh, every week for the past four or five months. The Maiz Church is headed by a pastor named Pastor Juma. He's a joyful brother who is planted and oversees about 30 churches in the area. And our makeshift clinic was a slightly shaded area there alongside the church building. And, and as usual, this day, usual, dozens of adults and about 70 or more children were gathered. And they're, they're seeking medical attention. They're socializing. The children are playing on the recently constructed playground as closed in the attached picture, which you obviously can't see. And he said, after though a couple of hours in the heat and the dust, I gave Pastor Juma some money to send an older boy to the market, listen, to buy some biscuits and juice powder. I don't want to eat biscuits and juice powder. Remember, God doesn't live in a bubble. No, but these guys have a different attitude. They were grateful. They have nothing. So biscuits and juice powder, woohoo! And so, so the kids, they, they get the, the biscuits and the juice powder, and, and they're all excited. It was a rare treat for these impoverished and malnourished children. And when the drink was prepared, Pastor Juma instructed the children in their makua tongue to form two lines to receive their biscuits and then proceed to the playground to get their cup of juice. And he then began to pray in exuberant thanksgiving for this gift, biscuits and juice powder. And the children joined in loudly and enthusiastically, and the two bag of biscuits were dumped into the, a clear plastic bag, and Pastor Juma was beginning about to distribute them, and he asked me whether he should give two or three biscuits to each child, okay, and I looked at the bag, and then I looked at the long two lines there, and I imagined how disappointing it would be if the biscuits ran out before the children at the end of the line got one. So I told him, just two. And Pastor Juma, he nodded in agreement. Well, I was only a few feet away, and I was observing the various, various medical stations, and I was answering questions, and I was watching the kids scamper happily toward the playground, clutching their two biscuits, and that's when I noticed the actual missionary report. That's when I, I noticed the bag of biscuits was still very full. And Pastor Juma, he noticed my look, and he just raised his hands in a gesture of surprise, and he started giving three biscuits to each child. A few minutes later, I looked again, and the bag was still full, and we both began to grin. Our God was doing something marvelous before our very eyes. The kids who had quietly taken their place at the back of the line and waited their turn were rewarded with handfuls of biscuits, and still the bag was full. And Pastor Juma gave more biscuits to every child in sight, and then he went around to the several dozen adults and gave them large handfuls of biscuits. And when we couldn't find anyone else to give biscuits to, Pastor Juma held up the bag, which was still full as it was at the beginning, and we both praised God for his miraculous power for, and love for the least of these. And I look at that and I go, man, what more does God got to do? Not only in his word, but in our own lifetime. What more does God got to do before we take him in his word? I don't care what your checkbook says. I don't care what you have. I don't care what you don't have. I don't care what your bank account, if you don't even have a bank account. God is so powerful, he can meet and supply any need he wants, even if he has to do it out of thin air. 
And I don't know about you, but I'd say anybody who owns everything, who commands us not to worry about anything, and can make stuff out of thin air, he might be a little bit powerful. How about you? In fact, you know what? I'm kind of coming to this conclusion. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> He's awesome. Third way, real quick, I'm going to close. God can do whatever he wants. How? He can solve any problem he wants. He could save anybody he wants. He could supply any need he wants. Here it is, Kenya three-point sermon, and they even sort of rhyme. Uh, he can solve any problem he wants, okay? And this is this passage of Scripture, okay? And this is what we see in Jeremiah. This is cool. Uh, it's, it's, uh, 32, verse 17. Ah, oh, Lord God. They're excited, right? This is touchdown, Rocky, woo all mixed into one, right? Oh, Lord God, woo yeah, yeah. Be- behold, right? Behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your arch- outstretched arms. So what, what are they blown away by? What's the context here? They took a look in the sky. Remember we saw last week, God's creation, how big it is, how awesome it is, and he spoke a word. He, he threw all that out there. It's so big we can't even comprehend it. Colossians says Jesus not only created that, he upholds and sustains it. He keeps it from flying apart. So the context is here. Wow, look at that. And what does it encourage you when you take a look at that power display from God? Nothing is too difficult for you. Every time we get out of bed, when we look at the night sky, we see the stars out there, we look at the complexity of God's creation, the conclusion we should see, Christians, is, woo, be encouraged. Nothing is too difficult for God. And go to sleep. Well, go to work first, you know, then come back, then you go back to sleep. <laughs> you don't want to get in trouble? Okay. But according to our text here, God can do whatever he wants to do because nothing is too difficult for him. And it, 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 all right, now listen, I know sometimes you might think, man, Pastor Billy, you're stretching it, okay? But I'm telling you, I'm not stretching this one, so don't be a scoffer, just deal with the facts. What this text is really telling us is that God can solve any problem he wants, get this, you ready? Including everything we go through. Isn't this wild? And I don't know about you, but man, this is a huge comfort to me, man. I mean, maybe I'm the only one that encounters problems in life. Right? Okay, yeah, that's good. You didn't raise your hand and be lying. Okay. Uh, but sometimes, what? They seem so huge. They seem, oh, no. How are, what's we going to, how? And you begin to wonder, uh, am I going to make it through this one? And we, we, we've, we've done all we can do. We've prayed all we can pray. We're, oh, no. Oh. I personally do this from time to time. Las Vegas is kind of a challenge because we've got so much light pollution. But go out in the night and look at the sky and do what that text says. Oh, Lord God, why am, I, why am I letting this rent space in my head for? Are you kidding me? Look at what you've done. As if my challenges are too big for you, nothing is too difficult for you. You can, you can fix any problem. Nothing is too big for you. Now, once again... Let me give you an example. I don't care how complex, I don't don't care how seemingly hopeless. Let me give you one example of how God can solve a problem just like that. True story. Marcel Sternberger, he always took the 909 Long Island Railroad train where he always caught the subway into the city. And and on the morning of January 10th, 1948, Sternberger boarded the uh, it as usual. But in route, all of a sudden, arbitrarily it seemed, he suddenly decided he was going to visit a Hungarian friend who lived in Brooklyn and was ill. So Sternberger changed to the subway for Brooklyn and went to his friend's house and stayed until mid-afternoon. And 
He then boarded a Manhattan-bound subway for his office, and here's where his story begins. Listen to this. He says, the car was crowded, and there seemed no chance to get a seat, but just as I entered, all of a sudden, a man sitting by the door suddenly jumped up to leave, and I immediately slipped right into his place. The passenger on my left just happened to be reading a Hungarian newspaper, and something prompted me to say in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. And the man said politely, you, you may read it now, I'll have time for it later. So during the half hour ride to town, we had quite a conversation. It turned out his name was Bella Paskin. He was a law student in World War II when it started, and he'd been captured, though, and put into a German labor camp and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead, and after the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot until he reached his home in Debrecen. Well, I myself knew Debrecen quite well, so we talked about it for a while, and, and that's when he told me the rest of his story. When he went to the apartment that once occupied by his family and his wife, he found strangers living there, and none of them had even heard of his family. So he was leaving. He was full of sadness. And all of a sudden, though, he just happened to run into some of his old neighbors, and they said to him this, quote, Your whole family is dead. The Nazis took them and your wife to Auschwitz. Well, Paskin, at that point, he gave up all hope. He managed to immigrate to the United States just three months before I met him. And all the time he kept talking... I kept thinking, this story sure sounds familiar. You see, a young woman I'd recently met at the home of friends also had come from Debrecen, and she had been sent to Auschwitz. Her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers, and later she was liberated by the Americans, and she was brought here. In fact, her story had moved me so much that I wrote down her address and phone number so I could invite her to meet my family and some friends to relieve the terrible loneliness in her life. And it seemed impossible that there could be any connection between these two people. But as I neared the station, I asked him what I hoped was a casual voice to Bella. I said, was your wife's name Maria? Bella turned pale. And he answered, yes. Yes, it is. How'd you know? He looked like he was about to faint. He said, let's get off the train. Or I said, let's get off the train. So I took him by the arm at the next station. I led him to a phone booth. And he stood there like a man in a trance while I dialed her number. It seemed like hours before Maria Paskin answered the phone. Later, I learned that her room was alongside the telephone, but she was in the habit of never answering it because she had so few friends and the calls were always for somebody else. This time, however, nobody else was home. And after letting it ring for a while, Maria Paskin responded. Well, when I heard her voice at last, I told her who I was and I asked her to describe her husband. And then asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin and said, try to be calm, but something miraculous is about to happen to you. Take the phone and talk to your wife. Bella was white as a sheet. His eyes were bright with tears. He took the receiver. He listened to a moment and his wife's voice, and he suddenly cried, this is Bella. This is Bella. And he began to mumble hysterically. And seeing that the poor fellow was so excited, he couldn't even talk coherently. I took the receiver from his shaking hand, and I told Maria, stay where you are. I'm sending your husband to you. By now, Bella, he's crying like a baby, and he's saying over and over again, it's my wife. It's my wife. I go to see my wife. And at first, I thought I better accompany Paskin lest he should faint from excitement. <laughs> but I decided that this was a moment in which no strangers should intrude. So I put Paskin in a cab. I directed the cab driver to take him to Maria's address. And I paid the fare and said goodbye. What a day. And he says this. Now, skeptical persons will no doubt attribute the events of that memorable afternoon as mere chance. But was it chance that made Marcel Sternberger suddenly decide to visit a sick friend and take a subway he's never ridden before? 
Was it by chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it by chance that caused Bella Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it by chance? Or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon fixing that problem just like that? I, my synopsis is this. I don't know about you, but I say Mr. and Mrs. Paskin there, if they're still alive today, they have no problem receiving this biblical truth that God can fix any problem he wants. Amen? How many times in God's word does he have to tell us, how many examples does he have to give us before we will believe him too? Anybody who could reunite that couple in that manner, they're not just powerful. They're all powerful. And they could do whatever they want to do. No wonder Jesus says, don't worry. What are you worried about? Just live today. I, I, I give you today. Enjoy it. I'll, I'll take care of you. You look at what you eat, what you get, drink, what you're going to wear. Have a nice day. Divine permission from God. Isn't that wild? It's awesome. And this is the awesome message we get to tell the message to the, to the nations that God not only exists, but people really can have what we have. This intimate, beautiful, loving relationship with God, the creator of the universe, who's all-powerful, who can save anybody he wants, he can supply any need he wants, he can fix any problem he wants. But if they're going to believe us in closing, we better get rid of this practical atheism. Like this man. Why did Jeffrey Dahmer go down the route he went? What happened in his family's household? Listen to what happened with his dad, unfortunately, at a very critical time. Let's take a look. Lionel. At that period of time, I had drifted away from a belief in a supreme being. And I never, as a result, passed along the feeling that we are all accountable in the end. He owns us. And that basic concept is very fundamental to all of us. You feel that the absence, at least for a while, of a strong religious faith and yes. belief for some years may have prevented you from instilling some of that in Jeff. That's right. Is that how you feel? Yes, I think I had a big, uh, big part to do, to do with it. I mean, uh, if, you don't, if a person doesn't think that there, there is a God to be accountable to, then, then what's, what's the point of, of trying to uh, modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? In other words, if there is no God, you get to act ungodly. Jeffrey Dahmer, as we saw earlier, praised God because that's a very important point. He admitted that he is personally responsible for his behavior, right? But let's deal with the practical facts. When did it start? When did Jeffrey Dahmer start to go down this horrible route? He's still responsible, but what influenced him to take the wrong road? His dad took a horrible detour for many years. Can I encapsulate what he just said? It's what I keep saying every single week in our study. His dad became, he chose to become a practical atheist. Don't kid ourselves, folks, if this isn't going to happen to the people around us today, if we do the same thing. You hear stories, right? 
People get saved, man, they're on fire for Jesus. And all of a sudden, you come across them again. And they're off in la-la land. And we'll say, oh, I'm, st- I'm still a Christian. I'm saying, well, maybe you are. I don't know. That's between you and God. I don't know your heart. But this whole time, you're off in la-la land, taking a detour, what's called being a practical atheist. What are your kids watching? What are your grandkids watching? What's your family watching? What's your coworkers watching? When you're on this detour, they're watching. And if you don't think that that has an effect on them, you're kidding yourself. The scripture says, never lose your zealousness for Jesus Christ. And if you start out with a bang, but you're in a ditch now, you need to repent, get right with God, and get back on track. And the good news is, they'll scoop you right up, give you a big old hug, say, welcome home, let's keep moving forward. The enemy wants you to think it's not that easy, but that's the power of the cross of Christ. Let's be those people who refrain from being practical atheists. Let's be consistent from beginning to end by the Spirit of God, the grace of God, and tell our world and show them that He is real and He is powerful and He's all that we need. Amen? Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven. And that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, Let's take a a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, The Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal, okay? How many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, We've already said we're a bunch of liars, okay? Well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, It could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, That means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says you shall not use the Lord's name in vain, Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. Okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you, that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, 
You've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a of death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. 
He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.